everybody! I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Liz. And you are listening to the Tough Like a Girl podcast, where we take a look at graphic novels and uh, trade paperback collections with female protagonists. And this one is a little bit different. Um, we're actually going to be stepping away from more action-oriented stuff, because we kind of had a string of that for a bit. We did indeed. We did, but I mean, there were movies that were out, so we tried to be topical, but yeah, both times we missed it by a month, so we, we didn't even do that well. But in any case, this time it was a book you brought to the table mm-hmm. that's called The Prince and the Dressmaker. So, what, is there any preface you want to give on this book, how, how you came by it? Anything like that? Um, so my students, um, many of them are involved in the Vermont um, Dorothy Canfield Fisher program every year, which is the state award that is given out to, um, uh, it's nominated by a committee of adults and then it's voted on by students in grades four through eight. Um, there's a list of 30 books and on the list for 2019-2020 is The Prince and the Dressmaker. Um, and I realized it was a graphic novel, and I was like, ooh, I think this fits our um, requirements, so let's try this out. Um, we've done that before with other books. That's how we got things like El Defo and All's Fair in Middle School and things like that. Yep. Um, so we, we've had a few, uh, few Dorothy Canfield Fisher nominees previously. Mm-hmm. So... This particular book is by Jen Wang, who I believe is the only credited person. So she yep. does she does art and uh, and the script and the story. Mm-hmm. So it's a period piece. Um, it's set. Have oh God. When would you say late uh, late 1800s, early 1900s? Sort of a Victorian era. Yeah. Feel to it. Yeah, and it's set uh, in Europe, mostly in Paris. Yep. Also. Uh... The main character, one of the main characters, is the Prince of Belgium. Yes. And so there's that. So it's, but it's that it's that sort of area of Europe. Mm-hmm. And I'll just sort of describe the opening setup because I figure that's the easiest way to go, and then we'll get into it. Mm-hmm. So the Prince of Belgium is visiting, and it he's celebrating his 16th birthday, which means that there's going to be a royal ball, and of course his parents are also trying to get him betrothed. Mm-hmm. To somebody. Mm-hmm. And um, a lady who wishes to take her daughter to this ball, she goes to a dress shop um, needing a dress because her daughter went riding in her good dress and got it <laughs> and basically ruined it. I love this initial, like, setup, and I love this this girl who's involved in it. I know. She's, she's only involved in setting things up, but she is kind of great. Yeah, she's a great intro to like it, she, she's just like, ugh. She has no interest in any of this that's going on. And because it's very last minute, the, the guy who owns the dress shop basically hands it off to Francis, who is one of his workers. Mm-hmm. He said, just, you deal with this. And in the course of conversing with this um, young lady, who obviously doesn't want to do any of this, um, and, and actually says to her, whatever, you know what, just make it ghastly. Make me look like the devil's wench. <laughs> well, um, Francis kind of takes that to heart, and the resulting proto-dominatrix look. <laughs> I really like how you described it, because that is very it. It is like... 
Yeah, it's there. It's kind of feathery scandal goth. Yes, <laughs> and and she arrives at the at the ball in this in this thing, and then just immediately starts gorging on the treats very messily, basically going out of her way to offend uh-uh, everybody uh-huh. there. She's got some like Furiosa eyes going on. She too. does. Like she <laughs> she did not. There were no half measures in what she was doing. Yeah. But naturally, this gets Francis fired. Francis's justification being, I was trying to make make the client happy, whereas her boss points out, the client's the person who pays. And in this case, that was her mother. <laughs> Which is kind of a valid point, at uh-huh. least from a, running a business perspective. But then a, um, a gentleman named Emil arrives and says... I have a client who um, saw the dress that you made and is interested in, in hiring you on as a personal dressmaker. And she obviously accepts this job. Mm-hmm. Um, and she goes and she meets um, the client, uh, an apparent woman initially, mm-hmm. who is concealing her face. And in the course of getting measurements and a few other things, the sort of veil comes off and it's the prince. So she then basically realizes her job is to make dresses for this prince who will then wear them out with also a wig and go out presenting as female. Mm. But nobody else knows about this. And this prince, well, Emil does. Emil knows. Yes. Um, the, the manservant yes. slash butler. Uh, and this, the and, Alfred Pennyworth <laughs> yes. of the story. <laughs> the the Alfred to to a to a crossdresser's Batman. I, I I like that. So yeah. So this is this is Sebastian. This is Prince Sebastian. Uh-huh. And then it you it, remembered it, um, a name. <laughs> well, I was also looking at a page where it's being shouted. <laughs> So that does help. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then it moves forward from there, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll just start talking about it from here. Now that you kind of get the the setup, the gist, yeah. So you seemed a little mixed on it, and then you said when you were reviewing, it, "Oh, I'm liking this better the second time," which to me reads. What was the issue the first time? Um, it was... I, I, I thought the prince was kind of uh, selfish. Because I really didn't like that he took some of her opportunity away to meet this designer that she really adored and wanted to meet. Um, and I really didn't like the scene... Well, spoilers abound from here on out. Yeah. Um, in the end where he's revealed by Prince Marcel. I'm very... I'm of the of the mindset with transgendered books where I'd rather have like people treat them well and a happy ending, which did eventually happen, and the ending really saved it for me in this book. But like, I I just my kids' lives are hard enough as is, and they need the escapism, and they need they need some positivity in their life. So that's how I like it. <laughs> I know that's not realistic, but like, and I'm realizing when I looked at, when we talked, because I just went to the Dorothy Canfield Fisher conference, and they talked about all these books, and I thought about the books that my kids wanted, and I'm like, they need, they want escapist books. Yeah. So, like, they don't want 
harsh realities all the time because they already have that. So um, there is some, he does face a lot of, this character, does, well, both characters face a lot of adversity. Um, so that was mainly it. Um, I mean, I didn't have any real issues, but as I looked through it, I started seeing the different levels that you could read this book on, and I realized how much the author was taking certain tropes and reversing them and flipping mm -hmm. them. So there, it is a Cinderella story in a lot of ways, but it is the lower class person that has the upper class royalty as her muse and is making that person over, which I really liked. I was like, oh, they're totally flipping this. And I was like, that's really clever. And just, it can be read on a lot of different levels, um, which is something that they talked about at this conference I went to on Friday, where um, originally they had set the age level, I think, on the sheet for the list at um, uh, seventh grade, but they're like, a, a lot of the librarians were like, oh, our, we have third graders reading it and reading it on a very different level than seventh graders, and the way you can approach it with different um, age levels is pretty impressive. So I think it's a very versatile, deep book when you get into it. So, I kept choking up repeatedly reading this book. Oh. So, and, and you know why, but I don't think it's actually come up in the course of this particular podcast. So, we'll have to kind of pause and give a little more background on me. Mm -hmm. So, I am gender fluid, which is, it's a difficult concept to explain, but here's the way I, that I do it. I, I'm not transgender. I'm not a trans woman. And I was born as male, but my personal sense of self in terms of my gender, doesn't really stay put. It meanders around, and sometimes it goes more feminine, sometimes more masculine, sometimes it hangs out in the middle. Uh, the metaphor that I've come to use is that most people think of gender as a binary, which would be like thinking of it as a light switch. It's got two settings. Whereas I find gender to be much more like a dimmer switch with a bajillion little fine-tuned things that it could be set at, and also has the ability to just you know, oh, I'll just waver it all over the place, which is kind of me. <laughs> um, and like, I love that metaphor. <laughs> this, I mean, this is something I've been for a very long time. I've been performing um, under the name Vera Wild for about 15 years now. Um, I've, I've like, this is effectively me coming out on this podcast, but I've I came out like mass publicly last year. But prior to that, like my friends knew and my family knew, and um, and things of of that nature. So the experience of reading this was actually not dissimilar to an experience I had watching um, uh, an episode of a TV show about a month or so ago. Um, for the Council of Geeks channel, I was commissioned to watch an episode of the British series Accused called Tracy's Story that had Sean Bean playing a cross-dressing character. Mm -hmm. And my feelings of this are very similar, uh, if anybody saw that video, because while I take some issues with some of the narrative, mm -hmm. the things that they get right about what it feels like to have a fluctuating sense of self. 
are that connects with me so much because they are the kinds of things that I don't expect anybody to ever get right because I don't think my base assumption has long been nobody cares enough to get this right. So, so when things do, that hits me, and that did happen here with him for a lot of reasons. The first is, you called him transgender, I'm not sure that he is. Because he does say, you know, sometimes I'm totally fine That's true. Being I shouldn't call them transgendered, you're right. And additionally, when she tailors him a male Outfit. garment, he's much more comfortable in that. So he's comfortable being male in something that feels right to him. And he's been tailored by people who don't know him mm-hmm. prior to this. So I do think he's got the more fluctuating thing. The other thing that I really love about this is... He has no confusion about who he is. Mm-hmm. He knows exactly who he is. The issue is he does not believe he will ever be accepted. accepted. Yeah. But this is not a questioning journey. This is not a I don't know who I am. He knows who he is. He just thinks he has no place. Which mm-hmm. is another thing that tends to connect with me. And it's funny that you brought up that you didn't like his selfish moments. I mean, I, I understood them, but the, I also sympathized I, with her. And you I need wanted... to. You need to, because that is why I, I love that that is in here. I absolutely love that that is in here, because it is an incredibly common thing that is frequently left out of the very few stories that try and deal with anything like this, mm-hmm. which is that when you are closeted, Mm-hmm. And the pe- and there are people in your life who know that. Mm-hmm. You are, in a way, causing them to be closeted with you because they have to share in your secret. Mm-hmm. Which most cross-dressers, trans people who aren't out yet, etc., you know, will have an appreciation of, you know, that this person is supporting them. But they don't always think that the secret that they're asking them to keep is is restricting their lives as well. I think a lot of trans people, we have a tendency to either not think of that or forget that. So I think it was important to show that not through any intended malice, just through not thinking it through, Mm -hmm. because he's been viewing her largely through his support for him, Mm -hmm. which again can be a compartmentalized thing that happens very frequently. Mm-hmm. He does hurt her, and importantly, she, both I feel like both she and the narrative call him out on that. Mm-hmm. He is not allowed to get away with it. Which, yeah, and he, he does realize it later on. And, yes, which, yeah. which is why I think that that moment is so important to be in here, because he makes a mistake that, and when I say it's very common, I know that because not only from my own experience, but a big part of what I did... Um, As Vera Wild, which has its own YouTube channel, was uh, was answering questions. I mm-hmm. actually had a series called Dear Vera, and where people questioning or, or um, trying to figure things out would send me questions. And this and communicating with people in that way, that sort of thing happens a lot. So again, it was something that I was surprised to see accurately depicted in a way that holds the character accountable without condemning him for it. I thought that was incredibly well balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And funnily enough, you say for you, kind of the ending saves it. So towards the end, we should probably talk about what actually happens. Mm-hmm. Um, he he gets found out because he has basically built this entire other life as mm-hmm. this female persona of Lady Crystallia. L- yes, Lady Crystallia. And after he and Francis basically have a fight, mm-hmm. he goes out as Lady Crystallia and gets drunk and passes out and gets discovered by what is he the brother of one of his potential Yeah, actually princes. it's his it's his fiance's brother. Oh, they are, that's they right. Are they, they are engaged. engaged by that point. Mm-hmm. So his future brother-in-law, whose name is Marcel. Boom, I remember names. You remember and names. Took it down notes. <laughs> um discovers him and then reveals him to the court. Which oddly enough when I was going back through was like when he first found him in the bar, he's like we can't let anyone know and then in the next scene he's like depositing him in all of these front of these people and being like and I'm like what the heck Marcel? No, it's like I that makes sense to me because he's part of the aristocracy. And they were in a place with commoners. Yeah, and so, I got that too, but I was also like, I don't think kids will quite understand that. <laughs> okay, maybe that's fair. But like for me, that 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 made sense in that tract because he's like, this is not something for commoners to, to know, yeah. but royalty needs to frigging know this is going on. But then everyone knew after that. So it's yes. like Marcel. <laughs> well, and, and then it, Climax is because Francis has gotten other work designing a line of dresses for a department store that just opened up. Mm-hmm. And um, Sebastian goes there. And then Sebastian's father and his father's guard show up. And the two of them kind of have a bit of a moment, which I did appreciate. But then that resolves into... Um, the guards and then ultimately, ultimately the king wear the dresses for the fashion show, uh-huh. which is cute, but is narratively very trite and very cheesy. And I actually didn't care for all oh, that Oh, you didn't much. like that? I, I liked her, his father's outfit though. With but the, the, the all of the outfits are fabulous. I'm not knocking the fashion, but I mean, this is kind of what I meant when I love this character and I love this depiction of this relationship, uh-huh. but narratively it is a bit... Uh, you know, it has some clever flips of tropes, but narrative structure, it's a bit, um, it's a bit sloppy and it's a bit coincidental and it's a bit cheesy in the ending. So I sort of have that conflict in my brain between the emotional connection I have with the character and the, and the slight distancing effect of the actual narrative that the character is participating in. That being said, you're reading it as an adult. Yes. And I realize for my audience, this is like, this is kind of the ending that they will want. Yes. And it's fun. And so like knowing my kids, they'll be like, yay, fashion show. Things are, it's a little bit of a tidy ending, but it that's is. the kind of ending my kids for, will like. For who it's aimed at, it probably should have a tidy ending. But yes, reading, <laughs> no, I, reading it as an adult. I'm glad you connected it to it, but... So deeply, but it's, it's also not exactly written for us in mind, though I'm glad. I know, but yeah. And Sebastian has this melancholy and awkwardness about him, 
when functioning as, as a, a as a boy. Yeah. I do that again. That. I relate to a lot, and in in many ways, and it's why I felt the need to point out, you know, the moments where he, you know, actually seems to feel more comfortable as a boy. Uh huh. Because I think again, he's fallen into a very common trap that mm. closeted or part time people go and fall into, which is that. In your other persona, in his case, in his female persona, you're only doing the fun stuff. Mm. You're not having to live... He doesn't have to live a complete life as Lady Cristalia. He gets to just have a nightlife mm. as her. Whereas... Like all of his responsibilities, all the boring stuff, he's stuck doing in boy mode. And it can often create that kind of melancholy because you start to think my male life or, you know, whatever gender I was born as, my male life is dull and boring and my female life is exciting Where because you don't realize, well, I if I started living full-time as a woman, I wouldn't get to do what I'm doing as a woman all the time. Mm. So often we don't make that leap and it does create this sort of constant longing because that's the more fun thing Same. yeah that makes sense which again i thought it captured very well and it it captured these things through mannerisms and through looks and through um you know little things about the way that he would hold himself so which is another thing that i appreciate is that and and this is also me um admitting that it might partially be projection on my part, but I read all this pretty clearly. And I like that it he never sits down and says most of this. But mm -hmm. I'm still getting it mm -hmm. from how he's drawn and how he behaves. Mm -hmm. Which, again, to me says that Jen Wang, whatever her connection to this material is, whether she had a personal connection to this kind of story or she did her research, mm -hmm. whichever was the case, she understood the ins and outs of what someone like Sebastian is going through. Mm -hmm. um, so however she came to know that, I, I feel it very strongly coming across in this book. Yeah, I don't know much about the author. Um, she did co-write a book that was pretty popular um, a few years ago called In Real Life um, with Cory Doctorow. Um, I think... We might have had that. It might have gotten lost. But yeah, I just remember that hitting and the like market a few years ago and being popular and like a name I heard in terms of a title and everything. So I would be curious to see her other book because this was, again, there's some deep stuff going on here. And I did like that you mentioned that um, Francis was also closeted because at one point she like explicitly says, I can't be in the closet anymore. And, yeah. You know, it's like, I'm, I can't do this. I need to be known as for my designs, you know? Yeah. Because so. she, she can't, he's going out as Lady Cristalia and, you know, these fashions are getting noticed and copied mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Francis gets no recognition for that because she can't, because she's known in the palace. So if she takes credit for these dresses, it runs the risk of it mm -hmm. coming back, you know, and uncovering everything. So, yeah. And I think you can also read this 
on a level of looking at social classes too, very much. Yes, he has kind of a default expectation that she'll just do what he needs to meet his needs. Uh-huh. Um, which does reflect sort of the the social classes going on, but again, I think is also a not an uncommon dynamic that can happen after someone like Sebastian finds a confidant and someone to support them, is that they primarily view them through that lens of being supportive of who they are and they don't always take into account how what they do affects that other person mm -hmm. or what they ask that other person to do on mm -hmm. their behalf does to them. Mm -hmm. I also, like, I double-checked in terms of, like, the romance that kind of is realized at the end between the two of them. And at first I was like, oh, the first romantic moment they have... Um, I don't, I was like, oh, he, he's, he's presenting as male, and I was like, eh, but then when we got to the end, when they kissed, um, it was as Lady Crystallia, so I liked that, I was like, okay, I kind of wanted that romance to be realized in both forms, I guess. Which, I mean, if they were gonna do a romantic ending, which they did, uh -huh. they kind of needed to do... Yeah. Because otherwise you you risk the possible interpretation of she only loves him as one or the other. But yeah. she has a moment with both sides of him, which yeah. which you need to Again, uh the intended audience probably wouldn't pick up and make that distinction, but speaking personally, I'm like, yeah, you need to show that she's good with both cuz otherwise I know that down the line that's not going to work. Yeah. She's fully in love with the person, not yes, a persona or not a gender. Yeah. So I think that's important. Um, yeah, deep book. Um, and again, I, I like I can see how it can be read by different age levels. Like it's very much a fun fairy tale type story with pretty dresses. If it's read by like third graders, it's a story of identity if you're going through middle school and you're looking at, you know, issues of gender fluidity and um, trans people. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I was really glad that you found this one. This was, this was nice. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. And I, I, I'm liking reading it a second time or like glancing through it a second time because I'm picking up a lot more and I'm liking it better. So I like that we came at it from different lenses and there's a lot to be said for this one. So Yeah. So that's, that's The Prince and the Dressmaker. Um, so we're going to do a quick promotional break and then we've got listener feedback from the previous episode. So last... Uh, episode, we talked about uh, a volume of Captain Marvel, and we had a number of comments over on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, fireandwaterpodcast.com. First one came from Ryan Daly. Uh, he said, good episode, although it was hard not to hear the soft enthusiasm throughout Liz's <laughs> review. What do you think? I liked it, you know. Want to elaborate? Nah. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Getting a little snarky with me. <laughs> I think I was a little tired or cranky that I day. I think he's just reflecting your snark back on you. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, 
Ryan continues, also nice to have a second Captain Marvel movie review on the network in the same week. Of course, if you wanted to know more about Monica, you could have time traveled to my latest uh, <laughs> Fire and Water Presents episode, which was released before recording yours. Oh, you... Subtle, subtle ride. <laughs> sneaky bugger. I'll take the next one. Um, Robert Kelly? Yep. Uh, my fave part of the movie was the debate me moment, and Carol answers that absurd request perfectly. Yes. Yeah, she does. That, I, I that is the Carol. perfect resolution to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Price says, I enjoyed the series on my Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel, Captain Marvel binge read in 2017 and 18, but honestly, I like... DeConnick's original first series in Pursuit of Flight better as a jumping on point. Still, Kelly Sue always brings lots of life and joy to Carol and her supporting cast, so they're all fun. Hats off to Liz for finding some fun in a book with aliens and jets. You're a good sport. <laughs> I totally did. Yeah. <laughs> book and movie. I'm still impressed by Captain Marvel. I think I honestly, having just seen Endgame, I still might like Captain Marvel better than Endgame. Oh, damn. Um, I'm throwing down that gauntlet. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Tim goes on with Ryan's and my Find Your Joy episode. Oh, Tim, I didn't realize you were on that one. I, I haven't gone back and listened to it yet. I'm sorry. I'm behind on a lot of podcasts. Uh, he says, I'll try not to repeat all my thoughts on the movie. Just add that my girls and I loved Goose the Flurkin. Mm -hmm. I had shared those moments from the comic with them before I realized Goose would be in the movie, but they still were surprised by the flirkish moments. Uh, it was also great talking to their Sunday school class briefly about the movie. Ten eighth grade girls and boys who seen Captain Marvel. Every hand shot up. One of the boys obnoxiously said it was boring, but all the girls were gushing. Direct quote, Brie is a queen. It does my heart good to see it resonate with the girls. Higher, faster, further, punchers. <laughs> Still a puncher. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. And and yes, like that's, I think that's one of the things that having a kid of my own really helped me appreciate that the value in things that maybe didn't connect for me, but they did connect for their intended audience. Because like, I did like Captain Marvel, but it didn't quite have that extra layer of connection with me but i've i've talked to more than enough people where it did and i'm like i'm so happy you have that mm -hmm. yeah yeah the more i think about it the more i like it i just i like the the relationships in that movie i like the the i just like brie and her smirk <laughs> and like just i mean especially her chemistry with Samuel L. Jackson was awesome. Apparently, um, he knew she was a ma massive Star Wars fan, and he brought his lightsaber from the prequels on set one day for her to play around with. I bet she, like, made the face that I just made, which is, like, <laughs> eyes popping, like, hands over mouth. Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh, this is so exciting. It's so, he, he, apparently, they got along like gangbusters, so, yeah, which, which came across tell. in the movie. Yeah, yeah, that you they, can really tell. It was just they a really liked working lot together. of fun. It was a lot of fun. Also, you know, great feminist moments, but, like, I like it when you can balance that and it doesn't get preachy if if you can have those moments in something that's a story that would still be worth telling even without those moments that for me is when it's best it's when you start it's when you have a message first 
And a story just as a means mm-hmm. to tell the message. I was like, well, no. If you've got a story where you're like, ooh, we can put a message in here. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. And it hit that so well. So we've got one more. It's a little long. Do you mind? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, no. Brian Linton says... I have to admit that I'm not very familiar with this version of Captain Marvel from the comics, nor was I, and I've already commented on the Captain Marvel movie and a couple of other podcasts. Therefore, I just wanted to let you know that I enjoyed your discussion of this collected volume, as well as uh, as well as all of the related digressions. I really cannot read today. In the same spirit, I thought I would introduce my own digression. Since seeing the Captain Marvel movie, my daughter has become a fan of the Marvel Riving franchise in which Captain Marvel serves as a mentor to a team of young female and minority heroes. I was curious if this was on your radar and if you had any plans to cover any of the associated comics in the future. I know there is one collected volume out already simply titled Marvel Rising and that there is an ongoing five-issue miniseries that began in March which I'm sure will be collected at some point. Finally, as much as I love superheroes, I am looking forward to a change of pace next episode, which I think we certainly have delivered on. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Marvel Rising is something that I am familiar with. I've heard of it. <laughs> um, I saw. I saw the first. I think it's still up for free on YouTube. I saw the first movie sort of thing, um, and I enjoyed it pretty well. I didn't. Love it. And it was largely for what I admit are nitpicky reasons. <laughs> you nitpick? I know, Never. right? It, whoever, ever would have thought that. Uh. Um, but it is um, it is really good. And it focuses... Captain Marvel is an, um, an inspirational figure in it. She only appears towards the end of that first movie. Um, it is primarily about Kamala Khan and, <laughs> and, and Squirrel Girl. Oh, love them both. I do too. But you have lots of nitpicks. Well, like, for instance, they did a gag with, um, with Squirrel Girl basically recapping the plot for another character, mm-hmm. and they sped up her voice a little, and like, it was a fine enough gag, but like, she she doesn't say this is not long enough. She needs to be saying more. This needs to be more. They like, they didn't push the gag far enough for it to actually work. Oh, that's so, odd. So it was, <laughs> I feel like gags are often pushed too far in any situation. Like I, it, there were, so there were little things like that. And overall, like I've, I've watched all the DC animated stuff. And when DC animated is good, it's great. When it's not good, holy crap. But I never really got into the Marvel animated stuff. But I enjoyed watching it. It was worth watching and it was good. I just didn't quite get... Um, again, I, I guess a bit like the Captain Marvel movie. I didn't have that emotional hook on it. Uh-huh. Um, but it was it yeah. was pretty good. And it's, it's, worth, it's, it's worth checking out. And yeah, I don't think we have any of the associated comics on the docket as yet but i mean it would be eligible certainly um and the other thing that i will mention i do really like the song that was made for that uh born ready by dove cameron who does one of the voices she might do america's voice i can't remember now um but uh that song i really like and i've actually used as a um (laughs) as a as a stepping out on stage song for hosting a show before 
So. I might need to look into the song. And you should put it on my playlist. I Yes, I will do that. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a solid recommendation, Brian. And like, if... I should find the time to look at because I know more stuff has come out since that first movie. I should look into more of it to see if it got refined a little bit better. I think that was the thing. It wasn't quite as tight as I wanted it to be. Mm, I might need to look into this movie, though. I'm like, I think you're saying Kamala Khan. You're saying Squirrel Girl. I'm saying, okay. <laughs> yes. And, and also, so also I think you'd like America Chavez. Um, I probably will, yeah. I, I think you will. Um... And the other thing is, like, um, there is a great... <laughs> there is one really great gag towards the front end where... Um, are you are you going to spoil this gag for me? Yes, but, like... <sighs> All right. It's, I will let you spoil it. It's a minor thing, but I really do... I do want to share this. And, like, maybe this will sell people on, on it better than I have. Uh-huh. Um, so... Um, Kamala and Darcy, which is Squirrel Girl's mm-hmm. real name, they're hanging out. Um, oh, no, it's not Darcy. It was it? Uh, Doreen. Boy, Doreen. God, it's been too long. I was going to say, I was like, that no, doesn't no. quite sound no, right. No, wrong person. So um, the two of them are just hanging out in the park, and, like, they hear a shout for help. Kamala ducks behind a bush mm-hmm. and, um, you know, changes into mm-hmm. her outfit. Or a Squirrel Girl oh, just... Oh, you did te- tell me this. ...just tears hers off. Um, and has her superhero outfit underneath. And while they're running to help, Kamala goes, God, you must ruin so many clothes. And she goes, snaps. <laughs> it was it was Tippy Toe's idea. Tippy Toe being her I squirrel like friend. Tippy Toe. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yes, no, that's 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 a solid recommendation, and you probably should check it out. Okay. So I think we'll wrap it up there. We do know what we're doing next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, next month is going to be. One that, uh, it's one of the ones that's been on the docket since the beginning, um, which is DC Bombshells. Yeah, we were ready for a team up. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had, since we've had a, like a truly ensemble piece. So that's what we're going to be taking a a look at next time. So um, yeah, that'll wrap up this one. So thanks everybody. Bye. Bye. Tough Like a Girl is a Council of Geeks production and a presentation of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on the Facebook page for Fire and Water Podcast and Council of Geeks. Our logo art was created by Nick Buxom, and our theme music is composed and performed by Erica Dreisbach, whose other works can be found at ericaricardo.com. Bye!